excitement. Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. This is far more important than a doctor's appointment, so I'm glad you scheduled this. Yeah, because the world hangs in the balance. The world hangs in the balance. Yeah, it really does. And, uh, well, welcome back to the podcast, friends. World's hanging in the balance. We're going to keep it up, keep it spinning. It's me and our buddy, Pete Enns. Welcome. Hi. Hey, Luke. Yeah. Thanks. So there's a rumor that you've got a new podcast you're starting, and that's very, very exciting. Yeah, um, it's going to launch probably in early March. We're just trying to get some ducks in a row, and we've recorded about six podcasts at this point, and we want to get a few more in the can, as we say. Yeah, in the are you actually going to interview people, or are you just going to like read your books and blogs? I might just do the latter because it's far more interesting than anything anybody else could say. That's See, that's kind of what I assumed you would do. <laughs> no, we're interviewing people. We're interviewing people. We we have a few people. Well, I know. Up. I know Very some of those people. people. Um, I I I think you're good at being asked questions. I don't know if you really even know how to ask questions of other people, though. Um, does someone do I that do. for you, or do you really like you know how to ask questions? No, I just I just raise a topic and I say, um, "What do you think about my view of that?" <laughs> yeah, right. So it's it's easy. Just kind of phrase the could question. You, could you right. also do my favorite question, which is, um, like, you know, pick a topic. Can you just talk about uh, Jesus and just kind of say, "Can you just talk about? Yeah. Uh, can you speak into? Um, are, are you going to do that a lot?" Yeah. Have you nope. had, okay, so you've got a few in the can. Have you had any Oprah moments where people start crying because you connected some childhood wound to their, no, no. you haven't done that? Not yet. We're working on that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you teased out it. who some of these people are? You're- yeah. Um, well, Richard Rohr is going to be on. We're going to interview him in February. Um, Science yes. Mike is going to be on. Um Rob Bell said that he would be very happy to be on, but he's off the grid until the yeah, end. Yeah, there's of a rumor about uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, no, well, I, I was going to say what he was doing, but then I realized I, I probably shouldn't because I'll let him say because it, it's kind of rude to say that. Ah, uh, yeah, they yeah. don't say anything. <clears throat> so, no. you're gonna ha- so you're going to have so you're going to have some of those people right. on. That's exciting. Ha- but you do know, yeah, and some some people, some, a lot of a um, lot of academic mm-hmm. people who have great ideas that I want to talk about because I think they're valuable for people to understand about like the nature yeah. of the Bible and history. And That's exciting. Like that. Yeah. Some acad- and Daniel Kirk, Kenton Sparks, Ben Summer, who's a name that I think some people might not know, but he's got just amazing ideas about revelation and the nature of revelation from a Jewish point of view, and that's a, that's a very valuable thing for Christians. Well, I highly recommend people just to subscribe to the podcast. I don't know if you really want to listen to it, but at least subscribe to it. And, and download yeah, them, no, and you know, kind of go from there. I did, I'm not making any promises, but yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the podcast at hand. Um, last week, yes, I um, I was in Daytona Beach, Florida, speaking to some youth ministers, and I uh, uh-huh. wake up in my hotel room and I get a text message from uh, the Godfather of Church of Christ preachers. His name's Rick Atchley. Uh, Pete, you'll meet him. Mm-hmm. You'll know of him by the time you finish your week at Pepperdine Bible Lectures in May in Malibu, California. Yeah, in uh, but he texts me and says, hey, 
Here's McKnight's take on the Keller interview that came out uh, a few weeks ago in the New York Times by, uh, what is his name, Nicholas Kristoff. And he says, you should do a right. podcast about this. And I say, yes, because he's the godfather of Church of Christ preachers, whatever he wants, I give it to him. And so I say, I, I'm going to email McKnight, see if he wants to do part of this, and then you, if you want to do part of this. And you said, yes, McKnight was not nearly as excited about the podcast. So it's just you and me on this one talking about Tim Keller. Okay. So you're excited about this. McKnight wasn't so much. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here. I wouldn't use the word excited. I wouldn't oh, use the word excited. Thrilled? Elated? Honored. Honored, honored perhaps. Okay. Honored yeah. to be asked. That's good. I like. It. I mean, you've been on like a million times by now, and you're still honored. That's what. That's what I, I have. have. You you still feel honored. Yeah. By that. Okay. I do you do. feel as honored as the time that I emailed you and said, "Hey, do you know any good commentaries in the Book of Exodus?" And I forgot that you wrote a commentary in the Book of Exodus. Was that honoring too? <laughs> no, it's just stuff that happens in life. You get humbled <laughs> sometimes too. Even by your friends. Oh, uh, well, sorry. I do have the commentary, though, and I did use yeah. it, and it's great. Thank you, and I have the application commentary Good. series. The question at hand, though. So, Nicholas Kristoff, in a Sunday review, asked the question of, am I Christian, to Pastor Tim Keller. And, Tim Keller, did you did you guys, like, work together on, like, that BioLogos thing, evolution? Yeah, we... we I'd say we did. I mean, to say we worked like side by side probably wouldn't be the good way to put it. But, uh, you know, Tim was my practical theology professor in hmm. seminary. Um, he and I overlapped, I think, pretty much exactly. We came, I think, the same year, I as a student, hmm. he as a teacher. And I think he left about a year or so after I left to, to start Redeemer in New York. Um, and also, you know, we were in meetings together with the BioLogos uh, Foundation back in probably like 2010, 2011, 2012, right around mm-hmm. there sometimes. So, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I and I know people who know Tim very well and have worked with him and under him. And, you know, it's nothing personal. I just really disagreed <laughs> with what he had to say. That's all I thought I'd say. Fair enough. Now, Tim Keller, I, like I've never talked to him. Um, I've always had a great deal of respect as... Um, like he's a Calvinist, and so that's not really my my bag of tea. But I respect uh, his perspective on a lot of stuff. Um, so, okay. Now McKnight's critique of a lot of the critiques about Keller, and the reason he said let's just leave Tim Keller alone is because he's actually converting these people, and he's getting these skeptics into church, and. Instead of just having deep conversations while swigging a beer, Tim Keller's helping connect people uh, to church. Do you think? Do you think that's a fair critique that there's a lot of people who are just um, handholding doubters and just saying, "All right, keep on doubting," but not trying to actually connect them to a a, a church community? Well, I mean that may be the case, but you know that has nothing to do with my critique or other critiques that I've read. I think it's a bit of a caricature. Um, but, you know, I mean, Tim does have a vibrant ministry in New York, and that, but that doesn't mean someone's mm-hmm. beyond criticism. And I think to say, well, he's helping a lot of people, therefore leave him alone. I can say the same thing about Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, and Brian McLaren, but they get eaten alive. They help a lot of people. A lot of people are nurtured spiritually by reading them. So I think this really comes down to theology more than anything else, not whether... 
it's it's someone we agree with theologically, and he's doing things that we think are of value. So leave yeah. that person alone. But um, you know, I, I think no one's above criticism. I don't think Tim would disagree with that either. So that's that's the irony in all this. I don't think that he feels he's yeah. above criticism. So um, and you know, when you talk about God publicly. <laughs> You know, or the Bible, or Jesus, someone's going to have yeah. a disagreement about it. Yeah. It just happens. Well, you know? My bigger concern is that, from my experience as a pastor, is that the the skeptic and the doubter is not someone who has been their entire life antagonistic or apathetic towards faith, but it's people who are part of church and then they stepped away, and, and so. It's really the question for me right. is not the like who's converting, but like where are all these deconversions happening? Because that's the people that I interact with the most are people who grew up in church, were, were followers of Jesus, and then they had these questions and didn't have a place to go with them. Have you? Is that your experience with a lot of the people who connect with what you do, or, or am I describing this out of thin air? No, I think it's people who have left the church or are thinking about it or would like to, but don't have. You know, for whatever social reasons, they find it difficult, whether it's family or just a community they feel bonded to. But um, there are many different kinds of skeptics and doubters. And, you know, in my opinion, when someone voices those uh, skepticism and doubts, you validate their experience. And that doesn't mean, as some people say, well, that means you're saying anything goes and you can believe anything you want to. Nonsense, hogwash, get over it. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what, what a lot of the critics are saying. But in a yeah. pastoral moment, when you have somebody there who has difficulty, you say, listen, I get it. And you know what? It's, it's not easy to believe in things that Christians believe, mm-hmm. right? I mean, th- there's a lot that, that, that we contend with that are diffi- difficult things to believe in. And so we should be sympathetic with people who say, I'm, having, you know, I'm really having mm-hmm. difficulty with this. And not say, well, you still got to believe it anyway. You know, that's, that's not helpful. You, when you say validate their experience, are you just trying to say that other people have gone through this as well, that, that you aren't the only one to find uh, an intellectual, uh, you know, struggle to get there? Is that what you're saying? No, I mean more psychologically validate their experience. Nobody who, nobody who tells their story, which is born out of some struggle and some pain, wants to hear... Yeah, you're yeah. wrong. <laughs> you know they they want they want to have a connection with uh, on the deep human mm-hmm. level as well, right? And um, I think that's a very very important step. And the first step is not well. Let's make sure your doctrine's right, and then we'll talk. No, the first step is let's connect with your humanity, and hmm. we'll get to those things. Now it's true that you know you know the interviewer put Tim a little bit on the spot, but I still think you don't have hmm. to take the faith. You know, uh, you know. Do I have to believe this to be a Christian? Well, you know, I'd want to know who you are. I want to know what your past. I want to know what your story is. Why you yeah. even got to this point? And one what, size. What do you think all. of his Greenpeace metaphor? Where if you want to be a part of Greenpeace, I, I think the metaphor was then you can't, uh, you know, disavow, you know, global warming as something that's not true because eventually, you know, you'll get kicked out if if you don't believe that. Do you think there is a level of Okay, if you want to be part of this organization, you've got to sign up for certain things to be in, to be in the club? Or at least, you know, yes. And what happens during the lifespan of somebody in a club like that, you do go back and forth and think, gee, I'm not really so sure. I said this sort of quickly, and maybe I want to think about it some more. And I think then the best place to be is in the community of faith where people embrace you and work with you. 
and um, accept the stage of the mm-hmm. journey that you're on. It happens to everybody. And that's what, see, this is why, rather than a biblicistic community of faith, a liturgical community of faith, for me, means a lot more, because you're united in something that goes beyond individual affirmations, because those individual affirmations are sometimes difficult. And so you read the prayers, and you recite, and you recite the creeds, and sometimes they connect more deeply and more quickly than other times, but you have a community of people around you who help you. Tell me more about the difference between a liturgical community and a, what was the word you, biblicist? Well, I mean a biblicistic community. Well, hey, it says right there, clearly in the Bible in this verse mm-hmm. you have to believe this. And if you don't, you're going against Jesus or against Paul or this or that. And I think that's a misuse of the Bible. I don't think the Bible is meant to be used as something like, here's this verse and you're not doing it. Right? There's a, it's a big Bible that says a lot of things. Um, but, you know, liturgical environment is, I think, more communally oriented than rationalistically oriented, where here's a verse and you've got to believe this right now, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. People doubt all the time. It's a normal expression of the Christian faith. Do you think when we, we talk so much and, and spend so much time talking about doubting, focus on doubting, think about doubting, that it just perpetuates more doubting? Do, do you think that like that sort of practice of, it's always out there, let's keep on talking about that, what it actually does is just keeps doubt around instead of you know, moving away from it? I don't know. I, I, I mean, my sense is no. I think doubt's always been there, but maybe now people are feeling more free to yeah. actually say that. Right? I don't think it's creating doubt. Um, I mean, yeah, we could turn the tables and say, do you think a forced, simplistic affirmation of cardinal doctrines of the faith perpetuates people who are simplistic and thoughtless in what they believe in? You could say that as well, right? I think that it's much more complicated than that, because life is complicated. But, um, yeah, I think people are truly um, human beings, and we all process individually, and if we're too quick to draw lines with people who, especially as you're saying, people who were in, and were raised, and I know many, many, I teach at a Christian college, I know many, many students like that. They're, they're trying to think through for themselves, and they're saying, I just need to drop X, Y, and Z. It doesn't make any sense to me right mm-hmm. now. Okay, that's where they are. I'm not going to tell them, well, you better get, you, better, you can do that for about 10 minutes, and after that, God's going to notice. And God's going to be really angry with you for doing this. I'd say, no, listen, go in peace, go with God, even if you have trouble mm-hmm. believing in God right now. And, you know, we're going to be around you um, as, as hmm. this is a part so of your life. Some people have the assumption that I, I've got to keep all those things. Like, I can't get rid of those, because uh, if I get rid of those, <clears throat> you know, then I'm done with God. And, and, and God's, uh, God's going to be done with, <clears throat> done with me, because those things are like a stumbling block to me. They're offensive for me to, to get behind. You know, there's language in the Bible that, you know, mm-hmm. that the message of the gospel is offensive, and you've got to deal with that offensiveness. Mm-hmm. I think part of the work that some of, some are doing is trying to say, well, okay, that's not as offensive, or maybe we can get rid of that one that is offensive. But do you still think that at the core of the message, there is something that is offensive about the message of the gospel? Yeah, and it also involves how we treat each other and how we look at ourselves and how we look at other people. I think that's offensive, too. When you look at other people as being more important than you are, that's deeply offensive because that rattles our mm-hmm. ego cages very quickly. So, but yeah, I, I do think, you know, that 
you know, you're in need of God's saving grace is offensive to be. It can be. Another thing can be very comforting to people as well. But yeah, I, I think the gospel is not something that just fits nicely into our everyday mm-hmm. way of doing things. It's it's a it's a it's an alternate reality, and alternate realities are um, unsettling and in yeah. that sense offensive. One of the things that was interesting to me about the interview was there was a sense that the virgin birth and the resurrection were seeming like we're on the same page. Like, if you can't get behind the virgin birth, that's the same as not getting behind the resurrection. Do you think those two are on the same page, or do you think they're they're different levels? I think they're different levels. I think, you know, the, let's say the biblical testimony of the resurrection is, I mean, it, 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 it makes the New mm-hmm. Testament cohere, in my opinion. And, you know, when people say, I'm having difficulty with the, you know, the, the virginal conception, um, there's, there are different reasons for that. Namely, it's Paul never heard of it. Yeah. You know, John, John didn't mark it. It's Matthew and Luke, and it's not even entirely clear what Matthew or Luke really mean by that or what they're trying to say and, and why they're saying it. So... See, and, and to question like that is not to, let's say, deny a cardinal tenet of the faith, but it is to say, listen, I have reasons for, for pausing here and saying, I, I need to think through this. I'm not so sure this is as obvious mm-hmm. as I've been told it is, right? So you're, at that point, you're in a state of doubt, perhaps some struggle, and it's okay to work through that. I, I would have a very difficult time saying that you can get rid of resurrection. Seems to me like that's of first importance to use Paul's language. But virgin birth, like you said, I mean, you got two gospel mm-hmm. writers. No one else is really talking about it uh, until you get to basically the creeds. And the tradition that I'm a part of has always had this uh, antagonistic view of the creeds. And so we've never really emphasized them to begin with. The Bible supposedly has been our only creed. Yeah. And if you're not willing to put the creeds on the table, you don't really have a great deal on the virgin birth as being a central thing. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it's not as, not as important. Mm-hmm. What do you think causes everything to get elevated at the same level? And so they're going to bring resurrection, which is like centerpiece of the New Testament, to being of the equal importance as miracles of virgin birth. Do you have any idea why do you think we get there? Well, I, yeah, I think, I think it's, the, it's, it's replacing sound, subtle theological thinking with proof texting, and, and again, biblicism, where it's in the Bible, everything is of equal ultimacy mm-hmm. because God wrote this. And, you know, I, you know, this is a whole other topic, but I simply don't think the Bible supports that way of okay. being read. Right? But it is, I mean, if, it's, if you deny any one thing, you're on the slippery slope mm-hmm. to denying everything else. You know, if you deny that Adam was a real person, then you're going to deny that David lived, and you can deny that Jesus lived. And it, you know, it's 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 that kind of um, uh, you know narrow track that you're on that that you know leads you to sort of treat everything in the yeah. Bible with equal ultimacy, and and there can't be subtleties and differences and and reasonable negotiation, let's say, between different things in the Bible. I mean, that, that's the stuff of theology. Mm-hmm. What do you do with this book? You know, how do you understand it? And it's not easy, and it's not just one size fits all, and it's not just everything is on the How, how would you describe not, theological thinking, then? If it's not the, if you lose one piece and the whole thing's falling apart, the whole, like, house of cards mentality, if you pull one out, then everything's going to collapse, like you were just talking about. Instead, you have mm-hmm. theological thinking, to use your words. What does that look like in how you approach the Bible? 
I think it's it's taking to account the diverse biblical witness and asking ourselves how and to what extent or is this relevant for our diverse existence here and now. It's it's a bridging of horizons and those horizon, horizons are complex and 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 varied, which is why the task of theology never ends. Right? It it didn't end with the ancient creeds, it didn't end with the Westminster Confession of Faith in the seventeenth century, it didn't end with the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It doesn't end, it keeps going because people change and circumstances change. And we've got this ancient text which is so reluctantly you know, it's it's stubbornly resistant to being simply lifted out of the ancient world into our present context. We have to do work to to bridge those gaps. And that that is the work of, you know, the, this this um, synthesis, I guess, between the study of scripture and the study of theology, the study of the history of Christian thought, the study of our own context. It's basically biblical studies, hermeneutics, and theology. Those things are always they're always interconnected. You don't do biblical studies apart from hermeneutical elements and also theology and all those things. So, you know. Each of those other things work the same way. You can't do them separately, and so I mean that 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 is theology. It's it's um, it's struggling with the inconsistencies of a text and asking what does this mean? What did the, what does even fact that there are inconsistencies mm-hmm. here mean? Right? How do we handle the different theologies of the yeah. biblical writers? Right? Um, and where does that you know what do you do with women today versus the first century? Yeah. It's things like that just come right to the surface. So theology is is always is never making a move without scripture, but not in a proof texting kind of yeah. way. The the challenge as a pastor is the simplistic, straightforward read is always a better sell. Like. It, if you can right. get up and make a 15-second statement about this is exactly what you've done, how God fixes it, and it, it, everything is black and white, it just goes better. Like, it, it sells better. People prefer that. We see that in all facets of the American experience. Like, s- the simple answer is yeah. always going to win. The simplest story will always be most compelling. Mm-hmm. I, I think Keller, there, there's a quote that he says that he doesn't want to contrast faith with skepticism so sharply that they are seen to be opposites. They aren't opposites. Like, I feel like he's trying to say, no, there can be some skepticism in theology. Like, it doesn't have to all be, like, without mm-hmm. critical thinking. Do you think people need permission to be skeptical, or do you think they need, like, to be pushed into that? Do you think they—I'm assuming most of your—you have a wide range of students. Are more of them needing mm-hmm. to be more skeptical, or more of them need to know that it's okay for them to be skeptical? I definitely, from my experience, definitely the latter. They need permission to to have their experiences validated. There's that word mm-hmm. again. That listen, I was raised this way. I'm just getting older. I just don't see it that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And is it okay to be on that searching path to decide how to handle yeah. this? Right. And and when you're told for much of your life that well, if, if you know, you can do that. You can be skeptical for five minutes or an hour or a day or two. You just can't let it go on too long. You've got to end it very quickly, right? And that's the thing, you know, to, to say that, you know, skepticism and faith, you know, they're not opposites. They work together. Yeah, but how serious are you about that? 
how, how low of a ceiling do we have to tolerate the person who, for whatever reason, because, again, their history, their psychology, um, their, their, the experience they've had in their lives, how they process things differently. And they can't help when and where they were born and what their experiences mm-hmm. were. You know, we're such complex. We're not just machines. Here are the data. Make your decision now, and this is where you stand yeah. forever and ever. We're growing, evolving, complex creatures that we don't even understand how deeply ingrained things are that motivate us every yeah. day, right? Another thing is that some people are skeptical and they're basically full of crap. Some people just love yeah. it and they love being belligerent. You know what I mean? I'm not talking about people like that. I'm talking about people who are yeah. in pain, right? Now, Nicholas Kristof, I don't think he's in pain, mm-hmm. right? So maybe somebody like that, you sort of like hit him back between the eyes. But in that interview, I think he was representing the skeptic out there who's wondering, what do I do? How do I, you know, how do I process this Christian faith when things are so, so difficult for me to yeah. believe in? To me, that's a, that's a different kind of pastoral Yeah, definitely. Question. So there's the question of, yeah. you know, back when I was in campus ministry, the guy who says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in anything, which really is just his excuse that he wants to believe that, oh, maybe I'm questioning everything because he wants an excuse to be able to sleep with his girlfriend and not feel guilty about it. Like, there's that, sure, which, sure. okay, yeah. that's not a legitimate question. But the people who are really, to, to use, right. you know, Rohr's language of deconstructing, like people who are deconstructing, mm-hmm. I feel like, let's give them permission. But I love that Rohr says, like, there's a term that you've got to move to reconstruction. Like, there, there is a deconstruction, right. but I think right. what is the reconstructed faith is one that allows intellectual skepticism to be in there. It's not either or, but a reconstructed faith is bringing stuff together while not making you feel guilty about your willingness to question and have these thoughts that coincide with your right. deep faith. <clears throat> yeah. And I think deconstruction is a great word because that does that does happen to people. Mm-hmm. You know, they deconstruct, and for very good reasons. In fact, it's necessary for their spiritual formation to deconstruct. Yeah. You know, because what at what point can any of us say we've arrived? Mm-hmm. Right. But. And again, I know I know Keller, Keller knows that he. he that's not an issue. He acknowledges the fact that there, there are ongoing things here in the world of theology. With not everything is settled, blah, blah, blah. But again, if somebody is deconstructing, it, it, it's good to ask ourselves, how do we look at that person? Do we look at them as a person who's on the way out or a person who's in and a broad path trying to work mm-hmm. things out? Right? And ultimately, only God knows that. We don't know yeah. that. But to treat them with love and respect and validation, I know that sounds like pop psychology, but it's not. People need to feel loved and accepted for who they are and how they are and how they got there. If you, that's, called, that's humility. Yeah, that's, love. that's in the Bible somewhere. Love. I re- somewhere yeah. I found it. It's New Testament. I know you're more of an Old Testament guy, but it's in the New Testament a lot. Yeah. <laughs> if you got the... Uh, Put in a situation like Keller was, and you were put on the spot, and you had to answer a question by someone who's legitimately wanting an answer, not just someone who's you know, trying to be a smart aleck or whatever, but really wanted to say, can I be a Christian and not believe in resurrection? If I just, I can't get there, I'm never going to believe in resurrection, can I still be part of Christianity? What, if you were stuck in that situation, what, what, question, or what answer would you give to that question? I would say, you don't know what you're never going to believe. I would I would encourage a person to keep an open mind and to keep moving forward 
seeing themselves as doing it in the presence of God, trying to work mm-hmm. that out. That's what I would yeah. tell them. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be pushed into a situation where I have to give an either-or answer to a question like that, especially if the, if the asker is making a lot of assumptions about themselves. I'm never going to believe this or that. Really? How do you know? <laughs> okay, what you're saying is right now you don't or you have trouble. That's a different thing yeah. entirely, but I, you know, I'm never going to do this. Oh, yeah, you don't know that. That's, I, mean, that's I, hope you still, I hope you come to church. <laughs> I hope you hang out with Christian. You know what I mean? I just I hope I hope you stay connected. I mean, I want people like that to stay deeply connected to yeah. the body of Christ, not feel alienated from it. Yeah, the, I, I think first of all, there's a tendency to universalize your current experience and think that's going to be eternal. And I, I think that's pretty destructive. It doesn't really work out too well for most right. of us. I, I also think there's that language of, you know, believe, behave, belong where church has often been, if you behave the right way and believe the right things, then you can belong. And moving right. to a church that says, we want you to belong, and you know we trust the other stuff will, will be secondary that comes along, but first you have to be accepted right. in the community, and let's, let's mm-hmm. let the community do its thing and impact your life that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this morning I was um, reading the Bible for a sermon, like I often do, and... I was do you re- also pray? Do you pray in a closet, or do you pray with you know trumpets? Well, if, and you fast, do you disfigure your face and walk yeah, around town? Yeah, I mean, if I did it in my closet, people couldn't see. But the good thing about my office is I got windows out both sides, and so <laughs> if I'm reading the Bible, like I just stand in front of the window so they can see that. Um, yeah. And all the high school students walking to the high school across the street will know that I am holy and righteous. Yeah. So as I was doing the Lord's work, um, I was reading a commentary who made a reference, uh, it was actually not a commentary on John, but this commentary from Interpretation. The theologian said, in the book of John, believing is always a verb, not a noun. It's not something that you possess, but it's an activity that you do. And I feel like belief, especially in this line of reasoning, is something that you possess. These are certain tenets that I hold on to. These are certain nouns that I've got in my back pocket instead of this is an activity that I do. When I've when I've heard you talking about, um, in your book, The Sin of Certainty, which is available now in fine retailers across this country, um, that, that, trust, it, that faith is really not about having all the ideas, but about trust and where you go to. Mm-hmm. How, it seems like there's two different definitions for what faith is. One is like that you hold to these certain mental ideas, and the other is your, your, your trust and confidence is in God, and you're, you're going that direction. Do you right? So you developed that. Do you see like how that is played out in a conversation like this? Well, I think it's a matter of emphasis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think quote the other side would deny that um, faith and believing there's a trust dimension to that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that what comes out very quickly is you have to believe X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there is more of maybe um, a stressing of the intellectual component when we talk about belief or having faith, something you have, something you possess, not so much something you do. Yeah. So you might, by showing mercy to the skeptic, you might be believing in Jesus yourself at that point in a way that's very, very important, right? To show, to show a willingness to not fix this person's problem right away, because that person may die tonight, and who knows what's going to happen to them. And it's up to you to make sure they 
are coerced into thinking the right thing immediately rather than recognizing that they're on a journey, right? Um, and again, I, I, I don't want to suggest that, that Keller is into coercing and all that kind of that's, that's not the point of this, right? Yeah. But um, I think it can be taken that way, and it has been, where um, we're very quick to draw lines based entirely on intellectual grounds rather than putting that to the side for the sake of the other and walking in their shoes and trying to understand, okay, listen, tell me, tell me what you're thinking, you know, and, and not so I can debate with you, but just what's happening. And you might hear an awful lot of pain coming out of that person. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, you might hear a lot about their own life experience that has in some not straight, logical, you know, propositional way, but in a meandering, sort of complex, journeying kind of way has brought them to a certain place that where you happen to see them right there at that moment. There may be a lot going on there. I think it's, it's our responsibility to sort of connect with people on that deeper level, which may take longer than a couple of exchanges by email where you have proof text for why you need to believe certain things. Yeah. Do you do you think uh, there is a benefit of making a claim of saying that someone is is in or out? Uh, say you, well, am I a Christian or am I not a Christian? Do you feel like that there's a benefit to doing that at some point? Yeah, I think there is. I probably want to think about when. You know, I I think um, you know you've got this even even in the New Testament this varied portrait of you know Hebrews is a little bit more let's say non-friendly to people who slip up doctrinally, and Paul is more like, nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? So I think you even have that interplay in the Bible, because I think maybe different situations call for different things. There is, you know, what some have called the rhetoric of warning in a book like Hebrews, and there are times when maybe that needs to be said very clearly, right? And other times where it shouldn't be, and the difference between the two is wisdom, knowing what is valid for the situation, what's healing to, in this situation, what's necessary in this situation. Yeah, yeah. You know, the words of Jesus that seem to say, you know, you have to count the cost, you have to make a decision, come follow me. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of, like, let's go seems to be in the back of my head of saying, well, maybe that's the opposite side where Jesus was willing to, you know, really push people at a certain time. Um, that seems to be the kind of the default thing for where I came from, and it's easy for me to kind of, like, jettison and get rid of that altogether. And I and I right. feel like at doing so, you, I do disservice to the message of Jesus, which, you know, mm-hmm. at, at at some point he does have some pretty harsh things and say, "Come on, either you're with me or not." Yeah, you, you don't want to get to a point. That's why you know it, it, it's it's this constant sort of oscillating in the life of faith, where you know this resting in the grace of God. On the other hand, you never want to get too comfortable with Jesus because you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be a little bit unsettled. And, you know, what exactly is meant in the Gospels by follow me? Um, remember, this is pre-resurrection Jesus. What's he after? What, what What is he pointing to? What's the purpose of following him in that situation? Is it to reconstitute a new Israel, or is it something bigger than that? That's, that's a big question. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, again, that's the offense of the Gospel again, right? That's, yeah. that, that's the thing that it's... It's, it's supposed to be for the most mature, skeptical-less believer, it's supposed to still be something uncomfortable and not something you just kick around like, yeah, I got this. This is a piece of cake. Yeah. Why do you think we shouldn't be too comfortable with Jesus? 
because of the challenging notion of the gospel, it is challenged. It challenges everybody. It doesn't just challenge you until you become a Christian, and then everything's fine. It's it's a lifelong, um, I, I guess, revisiting almost of of the seriousness of the nature of God and the gospel, and how you're never sitting on top of the mountain looking down on everybody else. Hmm. You never, you're, you you never have, you're never at a point where you don't have something to learn and something to repent of, something to change. Sometimes we have to repent of our theologies. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, right? But there, there's never something that we can't look at and say, "This is not good. This isn't right. This isn't healing." Mm-hmm. Right? And that's that's the uncomfortable part. Yeah. When there is this sort of attitude and there's a level of humility and awareness of you don't have it all figured out, that you you are on this journey, I feel like it can debilitate someone's ability to make a thus said the Lord kind of statement and to make, make more of a proclamation of, hey, this is something that we need to think and do and believe. Is there a way to balance that? Because I feel like that's something that can often be... Um, jettisoned too easily because you don't have that part of faith anymore. Yeah, I guess, you know, not to sound like I'm evading the question, I really think people are different, and different people need to hear different things at different times. And I think sometimes people might need to spend some time. I mean, you know, people have said, and I've told people too, you need a break from church right now. You know, you, you need to just sort of, like, jettison a whole lot of stuff, because right now you're so screwed up about how you're thinking about God and the faith. Maybe sort of taking a time out from institutionalized faith is a good thing to do. Yeah, because they can... Right? And some, some people need to hear that. Some people don't need to hear that. I mean, you tell them to continue to do online giving, of course, but they, they don't need to attend every... <laughs> I, I think there are a lot of people who've decided that they're going to do that regardless if someone told them they, they don't need to come to a church service anymore. Um, right. that's, that's good advice. Okay, final question. We're going to get you out on this, and I need a direct answer. Okay. Not this is not you can't evade this question, just a straightforward question. I evade no questions. I just correct poorly phrased questions. Well Go ahead. Your poorly phrased question. Um <laughs> Glaber Torres, Clint Frazier. Who's gonna have the most impact on the Yankees in the next three years? Ooh, you know what? I don't know. I mean I really I Typical. like them both. They're both amazing. Your first answer is I don't know. I don't know, and that's not evading. That's telling you the truth. Would you like me to be superficial about this? Yes. Or do you want me to be real with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so I'm thinking of positions, too, you know, and where the Yankees could need the most help. I don't know. Does Torres go to second gonna, or third? Uh, you know, Frazier can step in the outfield at the end of the year. That's what I mean, yeah. Um Okay, I'll say Frazier because I think the Yankees are going to... I think the Yankees have a couple of problems in the outfield with offensive production. Do you think Judge is the real deal in right field? I think Judge is the real deal. I think that, um, you know, the other two, whom I love, Ellsbury and what's-his-face? Gardner. Uh, Yeah, Gardner. I like them a lot, but I think they're never going to hit over 260 again for the rest Mm. of their lives. And they don't don't want to steal bases. To me, their whole point is to steal bases. Yeah. So I think you know they need to just 
you know, get rid of one of them. Figure it out. Figure it. Out. I mean, I I love Gardner's speed. I love his bunting, and El- Ellsbury is a potential impact player, and they're both great fielders. They're mm-hmm. fast, but. I want to. I want somebody. I, I want to see a three hundred hitter again for the Yankees. Yeah, that might you know? be a while. They the the potential they have to help is if they got a time machine, then they would be very helpful. Those two outfielders, <laughs> uh, Pete. Yeah. Good talk. I know people love that Yankees little bit of conversation. The last two minutes. Um, yeah. They need to hear it. They do. It, it might be offensive to them. It might be like the gospel, and that's what they need. That they don't want to hear, but they need to. Pete, how excited are you? One to ten of meeting me in person for the first time in May. Um. Well, let's see. If if a ten is like Derek Jeter, mm-hmm. and one is Ken Ham. I would say I'm going to put you. Now, this is a high compliment, by the way, because I really don't like people. I put I put you probably at a six. Oh, I'll take that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's not that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, that's good. I'll take that. I could ask you the same question of me, but I'm not that into myself. I'm not well, it's that it's, vain, it's not your so podcast. Just, You're not supposed to ask questions. Right. Like you don't. Fine, I'll have you on. I'll ask that question then. Okay. We'll yeah, see if it's no over, problem. under, and six. And um, yeah. people will have to wait to hear that on your the new uh, ends encyclopedia of in, in, enigmatic. <laughs> th- I don't know what your title is, but it should be alliteration. All right, Pete. Bible for normal people. Oh, that's good. That's I mean, that's straightforward. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what you do. Bible for normal people. Yeah. All right, man. My website. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.